Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior associate pastor, Dr. John Light. Let's turn together to the book of Revelation, chapter 3. We're continuing in this summer series on Revelation, the first three chapters. In chapters 2 and 3, you probably know, are the famous seven letters to the churches of Asia Minor from the risen Christ. So here we are at chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, the letter of Christ to the church in Sardis. Hear the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not spoiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, help us to hear what the Spirit says through your holy word to our church, to our lives in this day and in this place. We pray that you would help us and work in our hearts through your mighty, piercing word. Through Jesus Christ we pray, amen. Outward, external, formal Christianity, which has very little or no spiritual life, has been a danger to the church throughout the entire church age. Before the light of the Reformation dawned in Europe in the 1500s, The churches of that time and place were slumbering deeply in deadly doctrines of salvation by human merits and religious rituals. Then later, in the 1700s, in England, the churches had the correct doctrine as their creed, but clergy were more interested in their incomes and their leisure pursuits of hunting and high society and other such things than they were in preaching the gospel. So again, the people were sunk in nominal and external religious forms without any life. It took the work of the Holy Spirit in the Great Awakening under preachers such as George Whitfield and John Wesley by the power of the Spirit to preach the gospel again and to awaken the slumbering church of that time. 
The same could be said about the Second Great Awakening in America in the 1800s and and many other movements of the Holy Spirit throughout the world since then. The reality is that every local church must always be aware of the danger of spiritual decline and deadness and the call to wake up and walk in close fellowship with Jesus Christ. Christ's message to the church in Sardis is a strong antidote, we might say, to the poison and the danger to slip slip into more and more a mere external and outward form of Christianity where there is no living relationship and walk with Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. And that applies not only to local churches, but it applies to each one of us as individuals as we seek to walk with Christ. I would like to look at this letter under three points. The first is the danger of spiritual decline, and then the call to wake up spiritually, and finally the gracious promises of Christ. So first, let's look at the danger of spiritual decline. We see this in verse 1, and we see that The Word of God says, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. All of these seven churches of Asia Minor were faced with many and various temptations, but one of the premier temptations was the temptation to compromise with the world. And it's evident as we study through these seven letters that some of these churches were in greater spiritual decline than others. Probably most commentators would say that Sardis, the one we're looking at, and Laodicea, which is the last one, uh, received the most severe rebukes from Jesus Christ. And here at the end of verse 1, we hear this very strong rebuke when Jesus tells the church there, I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And we can imagine that those words must have been deeply shocking to the church members at Sardis when they heard this book of Revelation read to them. Jesus is telling them, they have a reputation of being alive. In other words, from the outside to all appearances in the community where they were, it looks like everything was relatively fine with them as the church there. The church had been established there decades before with gospel preaching by the apostles or those who the apostles had sent there. Maybe um, there were obviously still uh, the outward religious practices of the church going on, but with this indictment, we see that there is really very little spiritual life, if any. We find out eventually that there's some. Notice how Jesus says that, uh, how he sees little evidence of their faith. He says in verse 1, I know your works. And then at the end of verse 2, 
He says, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. What does he mean by this referring to their works? Well, he's, he's not talking about religious works to obtain salvation like every other religion in the world always does. He's not talking about meriting salvation by their good works. He's not even talking about somehow sinful perfection uh, that somehow Christians would get beyond the point of needing to struggle against sin and look to Jesus Christ alone for strength and for help. Uh, He's speaking about this fundamental issue of evidence of genuine faith in Christ. You shall know them by their works. Or, Or the book of James talks about faith without works is dead, being alone. How was this probably happening in the historical setting of the church in Sardis. Well, church history gives us some insight into what was going on in Asia Minor, in the churches of that day, in the Roman Empire. Uh, These churches existed in a strongly pagan society. And there were times of outright persecution that that broke forth during various years. But there was always a very strong undertow or a current, we might think, a pervasive pressure to conform to pagan society around them in little ways and in big ways. They were believers in Christ living out of step with the pagan society around them. Does that sound familiar, a little bit familiar to what uh, we would say that is becoming more and more true in our day. It's a lot like we would say uh, young people, especially in our culture and society, uh, face as they uh, try to swim upstream when the current of worldliness and conformity to culture around them is so powerful. And of course, all of us uh, faced that when we were young. There's nothing different or new under the sun, and we all still face it. You might see it especially with the young, but it's powerful for all of us. And for the Christians at Sardis, there was this constant pressure to participate to some degree in the worship of pagan idols and probably with Caesar worship as well, that Caesar is Lord. Let's say you worked in a trade. Uh, Those trades in that day were highly organized. We know this historically, and they were organized into trade guilds. Uh, Those trade guilds were a lot like maybe labor unions, not exactly like those, but would have been similar in some ways. And to work your trade, you had to be part of the guild. You were not allowed to practice that trade without being part of that guild, And you'd have to be approved by the guild. And every guild would have had its special patron idol or god, small g. So you would have had to join in to the special events or ceremonies and offerings to that god as a good card-carrying member of your guild. And the same thing would have gone for offering worship Caesar. It was part of their society. It was part of the warp and woof of just how society carried on. Even if people didn't take this seriously or they didn't believe in the gods, they would go through the motions. They would offer, they would take part in these offerings. And if not, 
You could experience severe financial and economic loss. You could lose your job. You wouldn't have a way to have an income. Or maybe even more so, severe persecution, active persecution, physically, violence, and things like that. So, how might a nominal, that means an external-only Christian, professing Christian, react to this temptation to compromise with the society? He or she might think to himself, well, I'll just try to keep a low profile and go along with the crowd, and hopefully uh, I'll manage to get through. I'll just go along with the status quo. I'll do what's necessary to keep my job. I'll, I'll stand with the crowd at the idol temple and bow when I'm supposed to bow and say the words when I'm supposed to say them, but I won't really mean it. I'm sure I'm oversimplifying this a lot, but the temptation I'm trying to put before us is one of many ways that they would have been tempted to compromise with the world, and that was only one of the ways. And so day after day, it becomes the real question for them, are they really a believer in Jesus Christ at all? And Jesus is calling them to wake up because they seem to be falling into this slumber of conformity to the world, which is so insidious, and it's always insidious for each one of us. In Sardis, this slumbering state seems to be the state of most of the members of the church there, all except a few, for we read, if you noticed it in verse 4, Jesus says, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And that metaphor of they have not soiled their garment, their garments, is a metaphor that has to do with idolatry being a stain, and it pollutes So they had not soiled their garments, understood, in idolatrous practices with the world. And so if there there were just a few of these individuals that Jesus Christ commends, and this is the only commendation we find. Some of the other letters have more broad commendations of the whole church. This is limited to a few, and really it's indicting the rest of the church there as deeply compromised and and dead to the point of almost dying. The danger of spiritual decline is always present for every local church and for every Christian of every time and every geographical place. We must never think that we somehow get beyond the the danger of spiritual dullness of heart, that we just begin to coast in our Christian lives because coasting, you know, coasting on a sled always goes downhill, and that's the way it is with the Christian life, whether it's in ancient Sardis or 2022 Lancaster, whether it's Christian suffering today in China under the iron boot of Xi Jinping or whether it's students in America going back to college this fall, whether the danger is a stick or a carrot, whether it's the beast of satanic state persecution or the seduction of the wealth and immorality of Babylon the harlot in the book of Revelation. Both are constant temptations. 
And the encouragement from this diagnosis Jesus gives of the church of Sardis is that since Jesus exhorts them to wake up, it implies that they could still repent and return to Christ. And this brings us to our second point, the call to wake up spiritually. We see this in verses 2 and 3. Jesus says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. What is the antidote to spiritual decline? Essentially, what we see here is a call to to repent and to return to active faith in Jesus Christ and to walking with him through his word and through faith in him. And this call to wake up and repent always includes a renewed submission to Jesus Christ's lordship in your life. These people at Sardis clearly thought that a lot of their lives were out of bounds of the lordship of Christ and felt like they could just coast in these areas and not be submitting their lives to Christ in active faith and repentance. But the Christian life is entered into by faith in Jesus Christ and repenting, turning from our sins, trusting in Him, and then every day of our lives is also by repentance and faith, trusting Christ and turning from the things that we tend to keep and hold on to and not submit to His Lordship. For the Christians at Sardis, repentance in Christ would show up in not giving in to the strong temptation to compromise with this worldly idolatry. And for them, that might have meant serious repercussions. But the questions they faced was, is it worth it? Is it worth it? You can have the whole world but lose your soul, Jesus says. And Jesus was calling them to trust in him, and as they trusted him, to repent and turn away from other worship of other things of this world. Verse 3 is interesting, where he calls them, Remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. What were they to remember? Well, they were certainly to remember the gospel. That's by which they were saved. And maybe he's referring when he says, what you received and heard, keep it and repent. He could be calling them back to remember their earlier experience of commitment to Christ when they first came to Jesus Christ. It reminds me of the book of Hebrews when that book was written to a group of believers who were also struggling with a fresh outbreak of persecution upon them. And apparently they had endured persecution earlier on in their Christian life. And in chapter, in chapter 10, verse 32 of Hebrews, the author says, but recall the former days. So notice how he's calling them back to remember the earlier, earlier experience. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, they, they were enlightened with the gospel, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison 
and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Notice how when the author of Hebrews talks about how they joyfully experienced suffering, how do you do that? Because they were focused on their better possession, an abiding one, their salvation in Jesus Christ, something that nothing on this earth can take away from us. And so the author to the book of Hebrews is reminding the believers, just like I believe we find in Revelation chapter 3 in this case. But the issue for all of us is, am I continuing to trust Jesus Christ and to worship Him and to walk with Him in such a way that I am willing, whatever the cost may be in my daily life, to submit my life to His Lordship, to submit every area of my life to Him because my highest reward and joy is knowing Jesus Christ now and forever. But notice that this call to wake up is driven home with a warning. In verse 3, in the middle of the verse, when he calls them to remember and so forth, and he says, if you will not wake up, what does he say? I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Now, this mention by Jesus of coming like a thief is a very familiar gospel theme. The parables that Jesus tells, the Olivet Discourse in, course in Matthew 24 and 25 about the end times, Jesus coming like a thief in the night. It's repeated in the New Testament a number of times. And of course, it certainly applies overall to the glorious return, the second coming of Jesus Christ when um, Christians are called to watch and be ready always for the glorious return of Jesus Christ. And that that call to be ready and to watch doesn't mean that we know when the date and time of that return will be, but it's a call to be actively walking with Christ whenever he might return. But there's probably a more specific meaning and application of Christ's metaphor here of coming to the church in Sardis like a thief and them not knowing about what hour he will come. Scripture also uses this theme to talk about specific judgments of God or comings of God in judgment and discipline to his people and to his church. Uh, We can think of the first letter of these seven letters to the church of Ephesus in chapter 2, verse 5, where where the coming, the judgment is spoken of in this way, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first, a similar kind of call to repentance. If not, and this is what he says, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So there are local and and, uh, I might say limited comings of Christ in this kind of judgment that he would actually remove a church's lampstand, that he would remove a church, in a sense, from the earth. And that is referring to Jesus coming in judgment when a church becomes thoroughly dead or apostate, we might say, and the Lord of the church removes the lampstand. The church ceases to exist completely and it's no longer there or it is no longer a true church, even though there might be a form of a church there. It reminds us of the biblical truth that a church might be a church by name, 
But that's all. And that's what the, that's what the people at Sardis are hearing when he says in verse 1, like we saw, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. A church might have a reputation of life. It might have lots of people. It might have many activities. Uh, it might have a nice building and financial support and all of that. But what a terrible thing to think that it might be possible that a church might already have had its lampstand removed. Christ has already come like a thief in judgment on that church. The people at Sardis would have been very aware of this idea of something happening like a thief in the night to their city, to their community, because Sardis was twice in their history conquered by a surprise attack, once by Cyrus and in the 6th century B.C., but once also um, later on than that. And um, this city was set on a high plateau. Um, by this time, the city had spilled out over that plateau, but in its original fortified state, it was almost impregnable except for one very difficult entrance that people, soldiers would have had to climb up. And it's assumed that in these surprise attacks, historically, uh, the armies must have snuck in and climbed the, that difficult ascent at night and breached the city in that way, and the city fell. Twice that happened, and it turns out that their pride and their complacency in those historical incidents was their undoing. Oh, so what a reminder to them, this, this metaphor, this analogy must have been of their spiritual danger and their need to turn to Jesus Christ, to wake up to their danger and not continue along in this pathway of spiritual ply, pride and complacency. Well, that leads us to our final point, the gracious promises of Jesus Christ. We see these, well, they actually begin in verse 4 when he talks about a few in Sardis, and it says, they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. And again, he's not speaking about a merited worthiness on their own. He's talking about those who belong to Jesus Christ and who have walked with him, their only hope is in Jesus Christ and his righteousness, but they are worthy in the sense that they have worthiness through Jesus Christ, and they belong to him. But then he broadens it all and says in verse 5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Did you hear the three promises in verse 5? All powerful promises that focus on the future hope of the Christian, the future glory that we expect. One is that we will be clothed in these white garments, and the book of Revelation has that as a theme. These white garments symbolizing holiness and purity. It points to that day in glory when finally the believer will be completely glorified. In this life, we still struggle in our growth in Christ, in sanctification, in our struggle against remaining sin, in our warfare against the world and the flesh and the devil. And finally, when we see Jesus face to face, we will be finally purified, 
by what he has done for us and by the salvation that he has poured out upon us, and we will be clothed in white, holy forever. What a blessed hope that is. And then the second promise is, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. That promise generates more questions than it does assurance, I think, because it's stated in negative terms. But as one commentary says, it's a positive guarantee that's stated in negative terms. Of course, there is no actual erasing of names from the book of life. Our names are in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the earth. Uh, But this point emphasizes that no true believer, no genuine believer, no matter how weak and failing his or her faith is, that Jesus Christ will keep us. He will not erase our name. It's a promise that salvation, as we would say, is of the Lord. From beginning to end, the Bible tells us salvation is of the Lord. He initiates it. He begins it all in our lives. He carries it through in this earthly life, and he completes it. What a great doctrine of assurance we have that Christ will hold us fast. And he holds this promise, this gracious promise before the church of Sardis to the one who conquers. And then finally, he powerfully confesses us on the last day. He says, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. And there are parallels to that in the gospel accounts as well. But we think of that, that um, our weak and failing confessions of Christ, as we are able to do that, as we live in this world and we know our remaining sin clings to us, that uh, because we belong to him, And because we have his righteousness and because he has set his love upon us, he will on that final day confess us before his father and before the angels. What a blessing this is. And it reminds us of the powerful work of Christ on our behalf from beginning to end, as I've said. But it takes me back to verse 1 where we find that these are the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. You might see that idea of the seven spirits, and we've seen this before, but to remind you, if you haven't heard that, the seven spirits of God are a symbolic way of speaking of the Holy Spirit's work, seven being the idea of of completion. And the seven stars may refer to angels, or it may also refer to preachers of the gospel, ministers of the churches, highlighting the word of God there. But the point is, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Jesus has richly provided for the keeping of his people from beginning to end. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. And it's interesting that as we think about this theme of the one who conquers, that theme, we might think of, well, conquering means that you ride from victory to victory like you're on a white horse and the whole army's behind you and you're riding down the parade route route with everybody cheering. That's not what Scripture tells us is the experience of conquering in this life. The experience of conquering is like the experience of Jesus going to the cross in humility. But we find that in the cross, he triumphed over sin and Satan and death and hell. And in fact, in the chapter on the work of the Holy Spirit, life in the Spirit, 
the same idea of conquering is found there. Do you remember that at the end of Romans 8 when it says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. What are all these things? Well, the verse before says, As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. It may be that people at Sardis would be martyred for their faith because of their stand for Christ. Conquering, though, in the New Testament involves the idea that no matter what the suffering might be, no matter what the opposition or persecution might be, that in Christ we conquer as we endure through faith in Him. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And Paul goes on. He's sure that neither death nor life nor any of these things will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What an encouragement Jesus gives us at the end of this letter. The promises he holds forth to us. We have this great assurance in Jesus Christ. We fight all spiritual decline and dullness in our hearts and lives by the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit as we walk daily in living fellowship with Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, the one who has called us by name and will keep us until the end and who will confess our name on that final day. Praise be to God. Amen. Father, we feel our weakness. We look around and say the world is so strong. The current is flowing so powerfully. It's like an undertow that sweeps us up off our feet. And Lord, we thank you that we have a greater Savior, that he who is in us is greater than he that is in the world, that Jesus Christ has overcome the world, and because of him and his work, that even though we live in the world, that in Christ we are not of the world. Help us this week to walk with Jesus Christ trust in you, to give you our lives anew, to rejoice even in whatever suffering may come our way, whatever adversity there might be, small or large, knowing that we have a great Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.